Every Sunday at this time, someone stands before you. Their job is to make the words of Scripture as clear and plain as possible. We're preaching through something called a field guide, thinking on what does it look like for us to be a great church together in the field on the mission. Every week I'm trying to just say one thing very clearly and straight to you. This week of all of these sermons, this will be easily the most intense and difficult text and truth to hear. So be ready for that. And there's some kind of algorithm that the less people in the room, the harder it is to listen because you feel like he's looking directly at me. Um, So just on the front end, just breathe with us this morning. You're safe, but hear these words. They're, They're true, but that doesn't mean that they're easy, right? They're true, but that doesn't mean that they're easy. So here's the big truth we're going to press. As we love and follow Jesus, we will sometimes, sometimes bear the marks of Jesus. If you love and follow Jesus, sometimes you'll get beat up for that. Our oldest son is 16, and he is much tougher than me. Now, I'm not saying that I was a wuss, right? I played power forward at Dom Savio. I would dive for loose balls all the time. I have taken my share of charges. I once ran 11 suicides in a row for the coach, and I didn't cry about it. But I'm not tough like this. He plays something called rugby. Do you know what rugby is? Think football just with a little padded helmet and a mouth guard, and that's all you got. Let's do this. Anyone who plays rugby, you know that they have played rugby because of the scrapes and the bruises and the the scars, and sometimes there's a tooth that's missing or at least chipped. This is the sport of rugby. Last year, they were playing against CM over at MC, and he was running down the left sideline, and a kid on CM hit him late and drove him off of the nice, soft turf onto the super hard track and actually gave him a concussion. Grace uh, limped him over to the car, put him in the minivan, and drove him over to Melrose, not Melrose, Winchester Hospital, Better Pediatrics. When I got over there, I just, I'll never forget taking the turn of the corner into this room. Here's my son sitting on the chair. He's in those short shorts and that little polo shirt that you wear to play rugby. His elbows and his knees are scarred up. His hair is matted down from sweat. He's got not grass stains, the stains that you get from the fake turf, so whatever those are. The whole room smells like a 16-year-old athlete. You know what I'm talking about? And he has this dazed look in his eyes because he's trying to remember the play where he got knocked and got a concussion. And I remember thinking, anybody who would walk by that room right now is going to know right away, this is a tough kid, and he's on a rugby team. This is a tough kid, and he's on a rugby team. All right. In the same exact way, the same exact thing holds true if you are going to be a lover of 
and a follower of Jesus, every one of us, and every faithful church ever, if you really believe and live and speak gospel, if you really align your life with the grace and the truth of Jesus, at some point, you will have some marks to show it. That's how this works. I want to take you to Scripture to show you clearly what this looks like. Right out of the gate in Acts 20, Paul rattles off three marks of his ministry to say, look, it was faithful. Here's what he says first. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in your city, serving the Lord. And now he gives us three things. Number one, with all humility. Everybody in this room is good with that one, right? Yeah, he was humble. Number two, with tears. Everybody in this room is still okay with this one. Emotional investment in the work. It cost him something to do this work, but we love when someone gives themselves passionately to something. We're good with this. And then here's the third thing that he says. Number three, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Mark number three, we want nothing to do with. All right, we've got a noun and then a clarification of a noun. So let's work this verse together. Trials, very common word in scripture. It means enduring a really hard thing, a struggle, an affliction, a calamity. It is not a pleasant word. It is not a happy word. It is not a comfortable word. Trials in scripture, trials in your life come in all different forms and and fashions, right? So you have physical trials who has suffered with an illness and you would say, man, that was a trying season or I'm in the middle of that trial. Relational trials, a divorce, a struggle with one of your children, and that was an exhausting, hard thing. A wicked, hard class that you were in, and you're like, why does applied statistics even exist? Because I'm on page three and I'm lost. This is going to be a trial. Setbacks at work, you're just not performing. Doubts, temptations to sin, addictions, all of these things are trials. Some are our fault. Some are not our fault at all. Sometimes you're in a trial and you're a victim. Sometimes these things could have been avoided. Sometimes they might have been avoided. Sometimes they could not have been avoided at all. What kind of trial is the Spirit talking about here? Well, the Spirit through Paul clarifies for us and says, trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Okay, so trials here are the ones that happened because Paul was just doing his gospel thing and some people were not down with it. Some people did not appreciate it. Some people set themselves against him purposefully, aggressively. This is an ugly thing. 
In other words, what he is saying to you, I know this is hard. One of the marks that my ministry was faithful, Christ-like, legit, not everybody liked me. Sometimes some people set themselves against me. Sometimes they wanted my words and my work silenced. In fact, in this brother's case, some people wanted him dead. That's not an exaggeration. If you read through the book of Acts, you will very quickly say to me at the end, hey, you know that guy, Paul? Here's something I noticed about him. There were some people who loved him. And there were some people who didn't like him at all. And I don't mean disliked him like, I hope he gets a flat tire, or I hope Gonzaga wins it all so that his bracket gets busted. I hope Duke loses because he put him in the Final Four. Or I hope he gets a giant pimple on his nose the night of his prom. Or even I hope his dog dies. This was, I hope he dies. And not just I hope he dies, I personally would love to be a part of seeing it happen. Go read the book of Acts in the city of Damascus. He needs to be let down in the middle of the night in a basket to escape those who had plotted against his life. In the city of Greece, he was going for his ship over here, and they told him, they have booby-trapped the entire ship. You cannot sail out of that port and he had to reroute himself to a different port or he would have been killed. And I don't know if you know that great story in Jerusalem when 40 assassins packed with each other not to eat again until one of them has killed Paul. That is intense dislike. No Kowloon, no Popeyes, not even a drink at Honeydew until he's dead. Do you feel this? These were the trials that Paul endured, constantly in trouble, constantly opposed. Okay, now, when we hear all of that, when we read this verse of Scripture, since we are super nice, and I know you people, wicked nice, most of you, suburban, postmodern, go along and get along, hey, you stay off my lawn, and I will stay off of your lawn, and maybe you can come over for a cookout on Memorial Day. American Bostonians. What do we say when we hear the last five minutes of this sermon? We say, Paul obviously had some problems. The man had some personality issues. He was obviously doing something wrong. Why didn't the early church send this brother to a PR class or sensitivity training or at least go on Amazon and get him Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? We would totally find fault with Paul if he pastored in Boston and some of this stuff surrounded him. We are convinced that a good pastor and a great church would be winsome enough and balanced enough and nice enough that we could avoid any of this ugliness and difficulty. True? 
the big win for us is to both love and follow Jesus and have everyone always only think very highly of us. Okay, let me be clear with my words. Did you hear the adverbs that I put in there? Everyone, always, only. In other words, most of the time, generally, our default reality as citizens in these cities around greater Boston, our neighbors, your neighbors, this city, should love Seven Mile Road. Our holiness, our humility, our generosity, most people should be like, I am so glad I live next to this person. I am so pumped that this church is in our city. I can't even imagine this place without them. That should be the basic witness of your neighbors and our community to a church that represents Jesus. What I'm saying and what this verse is saying is, but if we are only ever good with approval and applause, and never, ever okay with trial and misunderstanding and opposition. That is when something might be wrong. Trials come upon gospel people who are being faithful to love and serve and obey Jesus they are not necessarily evidence that something is wrong. Often they are evidence that something is right. You have to feel this. You think Paul is apologizing here. He's not. You think that he's regretful that there was trials in his advance of the gospel. He's not. He is matter-of-factly putting his trials before you as evidence that he was faithful. He does this all the time. In his letter to the Corinthians, he is defending his apostleship. Look at the words that he uses. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. Parentheses, I'm talking like a madman. In other words, I can't believe I have to defend myself. <laughs> You know that I love Jesus and I love you. But if you're going to make me defend myself, here we go. What would any American pastor do right now to defend his apostleship and his legitimacy as a pastor? What would they do? They would now just say to you, look how many people go to my church. Look how many Packed crowds came to hear me speak at that conference. Look at the number of hits on my blog. Look at my latest book sales. Look at the Gallup poll. I have super high approval ratings. I made it onto the top 50 fastest growing churches in America. Whatever it is, that's what you would expect to come next, right? Here's how I defend my apostleship. What does he point to? He points to his trials as evidence. Here's what he says. With far greater labors, <laughs> I was the one who had more imprisonments. I was the one who endured countless beatings. I don't, was it 12? Was it 13? I forget. I was the one who was often near death. 
Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes lest one. Three times I remember specifically there was rods involved. And then there was that one time that I was stoned. This is evidence that I was with Jesus. He says the same thing in his letter to the Galatians. He's been slandered and assailed and hammered, and they've said he's not an apostle at all. And he does something very troubling, very interesting. He says, at the very end of the letter, here's how I will defend myself. And then he does this. And he shows them his lower back and his shoulders that have been shredded because of his witness to Jesus. He says, here's proof. I have been beaten up for the gospel. These are his exact words. From now on, let no one trouble me. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Marks is that Greek word stigmata. You've probably heard that word before in reference to the wounds on the body of Jesus, his hands, his feet, his side, his head. Wounds that were evidence of his suffering at the hands of unbelievers. Paul says, sometimes, sometimes, faithfulness to Jesus, loving and following him, means being wounded or cut or hurt. You may end up at Winchester Hospital in pediatrics, dazed, and bruised. Why is this so hard for an American Christian to process and to hear? In all this stuff, me first. Bunch of reasons. One is we love our comfort. We love our comforts. Have any people in the history of any city in the world had more comforts and loved them more than you do, than I do, than 2017 just north of Boston. Anyone? We have heated seats in our cars. A couple of weeks ago, we went to the MC tournament game up in Burlington. I jumped in my dad's car. It was 10 degrees out that night. About two minutes into the ride, my butt got very warm. And I was like, whoa, Dad, this is awesome. How have I ever sat in a car before that didn't have heated seats? I was like, I'm just sitting here. Tell me who wins the game. You can walk into your living room and say, Alexa, we're out of laundry detergent. And put on some Billy Joel. And your Amazon Echo will order laundry detergent for you and start sampling Billy Joel from the 80s. We invented the recliner with the cup holder. Have you heard of the man cave? We have mattresses that you can program exactly like you want to sleep. We have Keurigs and second refrigerators and air conditioning. Remember when they first put TVs in the back of seats on planes? I think I was on the second plane that ever had this before. 
and I'm sitting next to an American Bostonian, and the TV's on for three, four minutes, and then it goes off. We lost the signal. And he goes, well, I won't use his slander of Christ's name, but he goes, this is ridiculous. I can't believe this. This thing's off already. I was like, you didn't even know such a thing existed five minutes ago, and now you're entitled to TV. You are in a metal transportation device flying to Newport Beach, California in five hours. You have a neck pillow, and this lady's about to bring you peanuts and Baileys if you want it, and you are not comfortable enough. This is our culture. This is where we live. And so we have made it our great ambition as the church in America to make this verse never, ever apply to us. Never. We have worked as hard as we can to find a way to avoid marks and avoid trials. In the field guide that I'm writing, I explicate a bunch of different ways. Let me just hit you with a couple fast. So here's one that we do. We try to nice our way out of any potential marks. I don't watch a lot of TV, but for some reason I saw the Jimmy Kimmel versus Ellen Niceoff. Did anyone catch that last year? So they set it up like a rumble, and usually two kids get in the middle and start throwing down. So they put Jimmy Kimmel and Ellen in the middle of this circle, and then they started being as nice to each other as they possibly could. Who could flatter the other one more? Who could say the nicer thing? Who could just be so nice? And of course, eventually he gave up and she won. That's American church discourse in a nutshell right there. Only and always flatter and be nice. Are Christian men and women supposed to be tender, gentle, compassionate, peaceful, patient? Yes. But nice is an America, Americana virtue that is unknown to Scripture. Does it not shock you what has happened to Jesus in the last 50 years of American culture? It's shocking. The only Jesus that a generation of people know is a guy who wears a dress and holds sheep and has a ton of product in his hair. That's the only Jesus that they know. That's it. I dare you to read through the Gospels and then come back to me and say, one of the ways I would describe Jesus is super nice. You cannot do it. You will tell me holy. You will tell me tender. You will tell me bold, you will tell me masculine, you will tell me kind, but you will not tell me nice. And not only is nice an unbiblical way to live, if it's our highest and only virtue, but I just want to make sure you know that it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Who is the nicest American evangelical pastor that there is? Other than Paul McFeeters in Forestdale, who definitely wins the award, and he's holy. I'm not making fun of him. Do you know who Louis Giglio is? Okay, I find him to be the nicest possible pastor in the country. Here's what he does. He gets college students together to sing songs to Jesus. 
The man wears a scarf. Does that do it for you? He's just wicked nice. And just an awesome, beautiful, warm personality. As nice as he is, Louis Giglio was banned from praying at Obama's inaugural presidential inauguration because of his love for the clear teaching of Scripture. Do you see what I'm saying? Not only is nice as the ultimate virtue, not Christ-like, but you're not going to avoid trials by being nice. But we have tried to do it. Here's a second one, even more intense. We try to equivocate our way out of any potential trials. Do you know what this word means? It means to be ambiguous with your language so as to conceal the truth and avoid committing yourself. To say something in a way on purpose so that when push comes to shove, you can back away and go, well, no, that's not what I meant. I don't have to own those words. Matthew Cruz and most Americans have a PhD in equivocation. You know when someone says to you, hey, you guys should totally come over sometime. What do you say to them? Yeah, that sounds great. That is an equivocation because no one has any idea what you're talking about and you're never going to have to hold to those words. Are you saying I'm definitely going to come? Are you saying, it sounds great, but I have absolutely no intention of actually putting that on my schedule? You have just used words to shade your meaning. We could give 25 great examples of how this works in American culture. If you raised your hand, probably the first place that you would say to me is in the whole world of abortion. And you would say, we have mastered the art of equivocation right there. All right, let's talk about the words we use. Before I do that, let's make sure everyone knows there are men and there are women in the life of the Seven Mile Road community who have committed this sin against their children. They have come clean with it before us and before the Lord, which is incredibly difficult to do. The grace of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin, all sin, all sin, any sin. All of us are dead without it. And so we are actually free to talk about this with straight words and not games. But that's not the way that it happens in our culture. You have to ask yourself, how is it that we have managed to make the taking of the life of an unborn boy or girl perfectly legal and normal in our culture? One way is equivocation. Just the word abortion is an equivocation. We are aborting a pregnancy, not taking the life of a baby. We use the word fetus. If we just say it in Latin, no one will know it's a baby. That's equivocation. We say cluster of cells. We've seen the sonograms, people. We have the science now. That's an equivocation. It's not an abortion clinic. This is a great one. It's planned parenthood. 
that may be the niftiest equivocation we've ever come up with. It even sounds noble. And never say that you're taking the life or ending the life of babies. This is much better. We're providing women's health services. Perfect. Are we for women's health in the life of Seven Mile Road? I don't know if there's anything I've invested more of my marginal time in than loving the women in the life of our church in the last two years. All of them, including our daughters, including our unborn daughters. I don't even like the word pregnancy. It makes me think medical condition of a woman. I like the old school. She's with child. Now you're speaking clearly to me about what's going on. Why do we equivocate endlessly about abortion? Why won't we just say what we're doing? Because we know. And we don't want to own it. We don't want to have to own it. So we'll say it in a way that removes us from the consequences. Here's the worst part about all of that. If you think American culture in general is good at that, American church culture has five PhDs in that. We've actually written the textbook on it. You know that Bible translation today is an exercise in equivocation, right? I'm looking for the EIGW version to come out. The everyone is good with it Bible. That's how we translate the Bible now. Let's pick the words that are the least clear and the most muddy and would never have anyone ever have issue with them. Why does the church equivocate? We're ashamed of the gospel. We love our comforts. We don't want any trials. We don't want any conflict. We don't want to bear any marks. So we'll distance ourselves from Christ. He's got his words, but we'll have ours. Who has the greatest temptation to do this in the life of our church? There's a bunch of prayers that I pray every time I get ready to speak to you in love with God's truth. I ask God for energy. I'm 43. Please give me some energy to keep at this. Accuracy. Please, Lord, don't let me say something that's off or untrue. Um, humility. Don't let me think because I'm the one who's standing and you're the one who's listening that I like in varsity and you're JV. I also, every time, beg the Lord for clarity. Why? because I'm a coward. And I would love to say it in a way that you wouldn't be sure so you couldn't actually, you know, know what I said. I asked the Lord, help me to speak with clarity so that you would understand it. My main goal with you is that you would at least be able to say, okay, I'm thinking about whether I agree or disagree with you. And these words of scripture. But at least that guy gave it to me straight. And I know what he was saying. 
Jesus, free us from equivocation. But I need you to know the temptation that will come to you and to me to say it unclear and muddy so that we will not have to own it. Masters of this. One more. If none of that works, we retreat our way out of any potential marks. There's a new book coming out. It's called The Benedict Option. I'm not going to rip it because I have not read it. If anybody wants to read through it with me, I would love to do that. If the premise of this book is that what we need to do in the face of a rapidly secularizing culture is to go the monastery route and remove ourselves from the public square and from relationships with people who are not Christians and only interact with like-minded people only and only hang with Christian insiders so that we can avoid the trials that are potentially going to come or bearing witness to Jesus. If we read the book together and that's what that option is, I'm out. I would much rather get messed up by the world and know that I have Jesus then stay clean and lose him. And I want that for you because that's where the joy is. I would rather lose a friendship and I would hate to do it. I would rather be passed over for a promotion and that would be awful. I would rather get pushed to the margins of a community that has happened before. I would have, rather have someone roll their eyes at me or worse, than not have Jesus. And so here's the invitation that Paul has for you and that I'm trying to give for you as sharp as this is. What if, instead of doing everything we could to avoid ever having any trials and bearing any marks ever, what if we set our hearts to say, okay, sometimes we may end up at Winchester Hospital with our elbows and knees cut up and our eyes glazed over. But if that means that we were in the fray, on the team, in the game with Jesus, it's totally worth it. It's totally worth it. With those glasses on, go back and read through your New Testament. Peter, James, John, everyone matter-of-factly says to the saints, sometimes you're going to get beat up for Jesus. And it's all good. That's because Jesus said this. Blessed are you when men revile you, hold you out for the sake of my name. Rejoice. It means you're on the team. I don't know what the right response is for you from this sermon, so let me love you with application. If you have been bearing trials and marks for Jesus, we love you. You may have been stupid, but not necessarily. You may have just been straightforward and loved someone. You're standing in a good place. God meets us there. If you have been living in a way that says, me and trials are never going to meet, and I'm going to see to it. I want you to say yes to this invitation today.
one of the marks, right? Unusual. This is not every other day. One of the marks will be, hey, maybe not everybody's going to love and approve of me, and that's okay. And the last thing that we're asking of you is, when someone else in the life of our church endures trials or marks, please don't accuse them. Please don't give them that look like, well, you've done something wrong. Please don't separate yourself from them. One of the most beautiful things that's written in a letter in the New Testament is when Paul is in prison bearing marks and trials for Jesus. And he says, would you say hi to Onesiphorus? Crazy name, but would you say hi to Onesiphorus for me? And then he says these words. He came to visit me when I was in prison. He wasn't ashamed of my chains. That's the church that I want to belong to. That when someone in the life of this body gets beat up a little bit because of their confession and their love for Jesus, that they would know that we are a people who don't separate. We're the ones who were there with them, not ashamed of the gospel. All right, let's think on this and pray through this together. Father, these are tough words. Jesus, you said, wait, wait, you're a a city on a hill. No one lights a lamp and then hides it under a bucket. I pray that we'd be okay with shining our light, the light of your grace before men and women. Lord, can we confess that we're afraid of this? It doesn't fit with the life that we've set up for ourselves. But if you are saying that one mark of a faithful ministry is sometimes not everybody loves who you are or where you stand, that it's okay. I pray that we'd be okay with that. Would you teach us how to do this better? If we are ever giving offense unnecessarily with attitude or pride, every one of us asks for your forgiveness, and I pray that you would drive that away from the ethos of this church. But I also pray that there would be no shame at the cross and the marks and the gospel of Jesus because we know that there is life and freedom and joy in that place. Hear our prayer for these things. Help us with them, I pray. Amen. Amen.